0: PART 3 CHAPTER 7 OF CANADA'S HUNDRED DAYS This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James O'Connor. CANADA'S HUNDRED DAYS BY JOHN LIVESAY PART 3 CHAPTER 7 OPERATIONS SEPTEMBER 28, 29 The attack was continued on September 28th, says Sir Arthur Currie. The 3rd Canadian Division captured Fontaine-Notre-Dame, one of the 17th Corps' objectives, and penetrating the Mach line reached the western outskirts of St. Ola. The 4th Canadian Division captured Raelin and Sa'ili, and the 11th British Division established posts in aubin au and occupied the Bois de Canoy. The 1st Canadian Division, in view of their advance of the previous day, which had produced a considerable salient, did not push forward. In other words, the day was spent by the Corps in straightening out its front, by bringing up the right to a level with the left. Developments of the previous day compelled a change in the area allotted to the Canadian Corps. Instead of pushing on in a northeasterly direction towards Nouvelle-Saint-Rémy, the 3rd canadian division with the 7th and 9th brigades in line after passing through the 4th division at dawn turned south out of the original corps area and stormed fontaine notre dame whose possession was essential if the advance were to be continued assisted by a hastily arranged but efficient barrage the village was quickly reduced and thus a movement began which resulted in the corps right being extended still further south until it took in the west bank of the Scheldt canal as the battle developed our troops stormed and consolidated the tongue of land lying between the Beaupalm Cambrai road and this canal and thus instead of leaving Cambrai on our right as originally intended we advanced against its western outskirts faced by the canal it is necessary to keep this in mind that this change of corps front bringing us under the walls of cambrai was due to the inability of the seventeenth corps to make good our right flank from anew through fontaine notre dame to the canal because when we finally captured the city some little feeling seems to have developed among our neighbors on the ground that it was supposed by them that the canadian corps was outside of its proper area and had no business to seize that honor as a matter of fact as the progress of the battle will show cambrai was taken not by any local success along the canal front but because in the great battle now developing north of it on the plateau east of the marquan line the canadian corps in the course of several days fighting defeated in detail every available force the enemy could bring up to its defense Fontaine-Notre-Dame once reduced, the 3rd Canadian Division pushed on to the assault on the Marquand line, the attack being entrusted to the 9th Brigade, Brigadier General D. M. Ormond. The line of attack was down a slope as smooth and open as an artificial glacis, swept by enemy machine-gun fire and by his artillery in well-placed battery positions behind. The line itself was immensely strong, sown thickly with machine-gun posts, and covered by wide belts of wire. No harder fighting had been seen since the storming of the Drocourt Keant line, and it resolved itself into a battle of detached and often isolated infantry groups. The attacking battalions lost very heavily, thus the fifty second battalion of Fort William and Port Arthur, losing during the day from three hundred to four hundred of its effective strength. This battalion had seen very hard fighting ever since the kick-off of August 8th, and its total casualties to the evening of this day were 50 officers and 900 other ranks. Weakened though it was, and exposed to more than one determined counter-attack, this battalion held the ground gained until evening, when it was relieved by the 58th Battalion, Western Ontario, which went through and after a bitter struggle captured that portion of the Marquois line fronting it. The remaining battalions of the Ninth Brigade, the 43rd Cameron Highlanders of Winnipeg, and the 116th Central Ontario, encountered similar conditions and fought with the utmost tenacity. Once the Marquois line was stormed, our troops battled their way forward into the valley lying between it and the arras cambrai road, though commanded by enemy batteries on the heights beyond. Meantime, the 7th Brigade, to the command of which Brigadier General J.A. Clark had succeeded, and appointment of Brigadier General H.M. Dyer to a command in England, was encountering equally desperate resistance and suffering severely, particularly in officers. That very gallant soldier, Lieutenant Colonel C.J.T. Stewart, Was killed while leading into action Princess Patricia's light infantry but this brigade whose other units were the Royal Canadian Regiment the 42nd Battalion Royal Highlanders of Canada from Montreal and the 49th Battalion of Edmonton once again proved its mettle and fought its way forward to its objective on the left of the third division the fourth Canadian division advanced their line generally and succeeded in practically wiping out the salient in which our 1st Division found itself, but only after sanguinary fighting. The 10th Brigade, Brigadier General R. F. Hayter, attacked, leapfrogging over the 12th Brigade, and advanced to the Arras-Cambray Road, storming the villages of Raylancourt and Sa'eli, between which ran the Maquan line these two villages lie just under the brow of the plateau and were veritable fortresses to be won only after hand-to-hand fighting our men bombing their way along trenches and reducing enemy strong points in succession in this heavy fighting lieutenant colonel r d davies of the 44th battalion new brunswick who on the previous day had personally led his battalion in its successful attack in front of in again led the battalion and notwithstanding heavy casualties took every objective towards evening the enemy launched very heavy counterattacks against the brigade front and especially against the 44th losses were so heavy that the line temporarily fell back after having made a personal reconnaissance colonel davies organized all elements of the battalion and in cooperation with other units of the brigade counterattacked, driving the enemy out, reestablishing our position, and recovering our wounded lying on that front. His personal example, disregard of danger, and initiative inspired all ranks to the greatest efforts under very difficult conditions. The fiftieth battalion of Calgary of the same brigade when attacking the Marquand line in front of Rayland Corps on the same day, found itself up against heavy, uncut wire and machine guns. Private W. H. Smith, finding that a machine gun crew and its supports was inflicting heavy casualties on the battalion, went forward voluntarily alone, sniping as he went, until he was close enough to rush the post, capturing the gun and twenty prisoners. In work of this nature, the support of our machine-gun units was of vital importance, and magnificently did they respond. Thus, Captain Kenneth Weaver, 4th Battalion Canadian Machine Gun Corps of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, displayed conspicuous gallantry on this day in front of Rayland Corps. He commanded three batteries of machine guns, two suffering severely early in the attack, He personally reorganized the batteries under heavy fire, established strong defensive positions with part of his guns, and after making a daring reconnaissance, established the remainder of his guns in advanced positions, bringing direct fire to bear on the enemy, and thereby establishing the advance line of our troops at a most critical time. Events on the front of the 1st Canadian Division this day may be summarized in the words of its own narrative as follows, On September 28th, the 3rd and 4th Canadian Divisions opened their attack on the right at 6 o'clock in the morning. The attack on the 1st Division front was set for 9 o'clock and was to be carried out by the 10th Battalion of Alberta. When 9 o'clock came, although troops on neither the right nor the left had caught up, and in face of very heavy artillery and machine-gun concentration on their front, the 10th Battalion went bravely forward and calmly commenced to cut lanes through the heavy enemy wire by hand. For two hours this unequal fight went on, in spite of swiftly dwindling numbers. The fight was marked by many instances of individual dash and gallantry, but none finer than the example set by Captain Jack Mitchell, M.C. of Winnipeg, who, though wounded twice by machine-gun fire, continued to pass up and down in front of the wire, seeking a point of entry, and cheering and helping his men. He was hit for the third time, this time mortally, and carried out dying. When it was found late in the morning that the 4th Division was held up some distance west of the Douai Cambrai Road, the attack of the 10th Battalion was given up that night the 8th battalion of winnipeg relieved the 10th this was the scene of a brilliant exploit on part of private john patrick collins of edmonton when the 10th battalion was held up by wire southeast of epinoy he went ahead alone and of his own initiative and although under heavy shell and machine gun fire and with no cover proceeded laboriously to cut a lane through 30 yards of wire he was wounded seriously in the leg, just as his task was completed. But our men charged through the gap and captured their objective. Very gallant work this day was that of an artillery officer, Captain James Creswell Ald, 1st Brigade Canadian Field Artillery. Following up the barrage, he established his OPIP, Observation Post, on the right flank of the infantry near Sa'ili. Seeing that the infantry were held up by machine gun fire from the village, he went forward, laying a telephone wire, until he could direct the fire of his battery on the houses and barns where the enemy was fortified. The battalion on the right was holding a line with its flank exposed for some thousand yards to enfilade enemy machine gun fire, and had lost heavily, both in officers and men. Rushing forward, he called upon the infantry to follow, and carried the machine-gun post whence came the fire. He was hit in the leg, but refused to be evacuated until he was unable to walk. Further north, the 11th British Division consolidated its position along the south bank of the Sensee from the Bois de Canoy, where it had established post overnight, to obenshule au Where the enemy had an important rail crossing over the river defended by a strong trench system throughout the day the enemy put up a very stubborn resistance throwing in fresh divisions and endeavoring at all hazards to prevent our forces debouching onto the high ground between cambrai and the sensee marshes measured by depth of penetration the day's advance had been relatively small but the capture of the Marquis line had been a great feat in itself, and it left us with a practical jumping-off line from the outskirts of St. oll on the south through Sa'ili, Hainecourt, and Epinoy to the Sin at obenschul au bach East of this line and on considerably higher ground ran the douay Cambrai road, passing in a southeasterly direction from obenshul au a little east of Epinoy, to 1,200 yards east of Hainecourt, thence 2,000 yards east of Saeli to where it crossed the canal into Cambrai at neuville saint Remy. 2,000 yards east of St. Ola, the douai cambrai Railway, after leaving the Sensee, takes a wide loop east of Epinoy, to a point not far from the western outskirts of Abancourt, and thence passing through sancor runs east of and practically parallel to the road through tilloy into the sharp northern angle of Cambrai. this railway with its high embankments and deep cuttings was to prove a strategic feature of the first importance both to the attacker and defender in both of which roles canadian troops were to figure at one time or another during the next few days Heavy fighting characterized September 29, says the Corps commander. The 3rd Canadian Division, the 4th Canadian Division, and the 1st Canadian Division all made progress in the face of severe opposition. The 3rd Canadian Division pushed the line forward to the junction of the Arras and Beaupalm Road, the western outskirts of neuville saint and the douai Cambrai Road. They also cleared the Marquion Line, from the beaupalm Cambrai Road southwards, towards the Scheldt Canal. These trenches were in the 17th Corps area, but it was difficult for our attack to progress, leaving on its flank and rear this strongly held position. The 4th Canadian Division captured Sancor, crossed the douay Cambrai Railway, and entered Blecourt, but later withdrew to the line of the railway in the face of a heavy counterattack. The necessity for this withdrawal was accentuated by the situation on the left the 11th division in spite of two attempts had been unable to occupy the high ground northeast of epinoy this had interfered materially with the progress of the first canadian division and had prevented their holding positions gained early in the day in the neighborhood of abancourt station the relinquishment of which in turn endangered the flank of the fourth canadian division the third division attacked with all three brigades in line the ninth on the right fighting its way down to the scheldt canal the eighth in the center and the seventh on the left very brilliant work was done by the first cmr of saskatchewan in storming st ola in face of intensive machine-gun fire both from that village and neuville st remy beyond where one of our staff officers described the rattle of machine-guns as drowning out the roar of the artillery in this attack the battalion lost 350 men but by two o'clock in the afternoon had cleared the village and pushed its line forward to the banks of the canal at Cambrai. cooperating in the capture of st. ola was the 116th battalion central Ontario the assault gaining materially from the very brilliant action of lieutenant Bonner who with one man worked behind an enemy trench and bombed their way up it from the rear. Two whiz-bang batteries, a dozen machine guns, and a large number of prisoners were gathered in here. From a church tower in St. Ola, a clear view was offered of the city lying in the valley across the canal, where clouds of smoke indicated that the enemy was burning his dumps in the dip of ground to the west of st ola lay a number of our field batteries in the open field suffering heavy casualties from enemy counter-battery fire overhead our battle planes pursued and drove back enemy scouting machines bringing down two within our lines while a third was sent crashing by our machine gun fire behind the ridge along a sunken road passed all manner of lorries including our motor ambulances paying no heed to bursting shells. Well up to our battle-line, and marking by its curved formation the depth of the salient, we had pushed home. Were our observation balloons, the familiar sausages? Once in a while the intrepid observers, not inaptly named balloonatics, were forced to descend suddenly by parachute when their floating homes had been rent by high explosives or set afire by the flaming arrows of a daring enemy aviator. Back of all lay Berlon Wood. On the left of the 3rd Division, the 4th Canadian Division pushed in a very vigorous attack. Supported by a fine barrage, the 12th Brigade attacked at 5.20 a.m., through the 10th Brigade with the 38th Battalion of Ottawa on the right and the 72nd, the Fourth Highlanders of Vancouver, on the left. The 38th Battalion was held up because troops on its right were not up and it was exposed throughout the day to a flank as well as a frontal fire. Though suffering many casualties, this battalion consolidated its line and beat off enemy counter-attacks. It suffered a severe loss when Lieutenant Colonel S.D. Gardner, whose brilliant leadership had been a great stimulus to all ranks, sustained a broken hip and other wounds from which he subsequently died. The seventy second battalion pushed forward very gallantly, capturing Sancor and compelling the surrender of its garrison, numbering more men than the entire battalion's strength. Advance was then made in the direction of Blaircourt, where the enemy was established in strong underground works with a formidable system of machine gun posts. Lieutenant J. McKnight of B Company, with five men, penetrated into the village. And to this little advance party, a hundred of the enemy surrendered, being marched out in column of four. The company coming up, the rest of the garrison laid down their arms, 350 in all. An overwhelming counter-attack then developed from down the Batany ravine, and our men fell back on Sancor, but taking with them 240 prisoners. It is the first time we've had to chuck anything we've once got hold of, and we don't like it, unquote, said one of these Vancouver Highlanders. As they fell back, four of our men, too seriously wounded to be brought back, could be heard putting up their last fight. Lieutenant Colonel Kirkpatrick of the seventy second battalion set a fine example, rallying his men in the front line when the position was critical in face of determined enemy counterattacks, the 85th battalion was pushed up in support and passing through sancourt beat off two or three enemy counter-attacks during this period lieutenant colonel j l ralston was wounded in the cheek temporarily losing the sight of one eye but refused to be evacuated staying with his battalion until it came out of the line some days later the attack on the left had not developed as well as had been expected, and both the 72nd and 85th Battalions held a very exposed position. Our position in Sancor was, however, consolidated and provided an advanced jumping-off point for the next day's battle. At a critical period in the day's fighting, Brigadier General J. H. mcbryan made a personal reconnaissance on horseback during the course of which he was slightly wounded in the leg, but carried on until he had obtained the information required to continue the attack. Every battalion in the 12th Brigade was engaged during this day of exceedingly stiff fighting. The 78th Battalion of Winnipeg, coming up in support, and equally distinguishing itself in beating off the overwhelming forces launched by the enemy in his effort to prevent our securing footing on the plateau, This battalion pushed out far on the plateau, and for a time was almost cut off. Most of its officers were casualties, and Brigadier General McBrien sent up two of his intelligence officers in support. Staff Captain Barry, formerly of the 72nd Battalion, and recalled after only three days' leave to take part in this battle, found himself isolated with seventeen men south of Cuvilliers. notwithstanding his wounds from which he afterwards died he held the position against all assaults until support came up. Staff Captain Merston of Vancouver also did very fine work. Here once again the stubborn qualities of the Canadian soldier were brought into full play for it was only by the fine tenacity of all ranks that the ground consolidated was held. On the left on the fronts of the first canadian and eleventh british divisions the attack was generally held up the second brigade to the command of which brigadier general r p clark had succeeded on promotion of major general loomis to command the third canadian division attacked with the eighth battalion of winnipeg in the line and good progress was at first made in the direction of abancourt but as the troops on our left failed to capture the high ground northeast of epinoy this temporary success had to be abandoned the struggle for the plateau was now about to open the positions attained by the intensive fighting of the three first days september twenty seven to twenty nine had brought us to the fringe of this plateau whose possession must be followed by the fall of Cambrai, and the turning of the entire enemy line south in the direction of san quentin the position on our right had been made more secure by the advance of the 17th Corps which had captured the village of Proville across the Scheldt Canal southwest of Cambrai and the anxiety regarding our vulnerable right flank was at length removed before entering on a detailed account of the fighting of the next two days September 30 and October 1 a description of the battlefield is necessary as already explained, the ground in front of our line was bisected first by the Douai-Cambrai road and then further east by the Douai-Cambrai railway. East of this railway lies a rough quadrilateral or triangle bounded on the west by the railway and on the north by the Canal de la Sensee, while its base is formed by the Scheldt Canal running generally northeast from Cambrai to the point beyond Estrand. Where it connects with the Sainte-Sea. the Canadian corps front along the line of the railway from the scheldt to the Sainte-Sea extended over about ten thousand yards, and its attacking direction was northeast, its objectives being on the right to seize the bridges of the scheldt, and in its center to seize the high land contained within this triangle. The depth of the attack from Sainte-Court northeast to Estron is about nine thousand yards. Superficially, the ground favored the direction of the attack, for the ridges all trimmed away to the northeast. Beginning at the Shelt, the ground sloped gradually up towards the northwest over a bare slope to a ridge on the 75-meter level, running some 3,000 yards northeast from Tilloy. Roughly parallel to this ridge, 1,000 to 2,000 yards northwest, but with a little dip intervening, is a high, bare plateau, running finger-like from the railway between Tilloy and Sancor, northeast past to midway between that village and Palincourt. Two thousand yards east, and a little south of Tilloy, is the hamlet of Morinches, with the wood of the same name low-lying on the Scheldt. Following the Scheldt another thousand yards east is the Pont Dea, a very important tactical feature, being a series of bridges over the Scheldt and its spillways, connecting the northern bank with the industrial suburb of esco Northeast, another 1,000 yards, is the town of Ramelis. Still, following down the bank of the Scheldt 2,000 yards northeast of Ramillies, is the village of essoirs whence a ravine cuts due west into the plateau towards Couvelier. In the fighting to follow, the area thus described, namely the Scheldt on the right and the plateau on the left, fell within the 3rd and 4th Canadian divisional areas respectively, the immediate objectives of the former being Tilloy, Morinchies, and Ramelies, and of the latter Essoirs on the right and Couvalier on the left. The dividing line between the 4th Canadian Division and the 1st Canadian Division on its left was provided by the strongly marked feature known as the Batigny Ravine, running northeast from Sancourt through Blecour, 1,500 yards distance, thence through Batigny, 1,800 yards from Blecour, and so to the Sensee. Along the bottom of this defile runs a wooded highway, affording excellent cover for enemy machine gunners, were able to sweep the bare ridges and plateau on either side rising gently up from battenay ravine to the northwest a series of small detached spurs fill in the ground to where it slopes down again on the north to the Sensee canal and in the heart of these the strongly fortified village of abancore 1500 yards northwest of battenay offered a formidable pivot of defense between Abencourt and Epinoy, 3,000 yards west, lies very high ground, commanding Aventcourt and the Batinay Ravine. The position offered a tactical peculiarity in that its strength lay rather with the ravines than on the ridges, whose exposed surface was everywhere dominated by artillery and machine gun fire. It thus came about that our troops found that their task had but begun when they stormed the ridges, and that it was an infinitely harder task to cling on to the ground they had won in face of a withering fire that at times caught them in rear as well as in flank the skill with which the enemy continually filtered fresh troops for the most part machine gunners along the ravine bottoms into the very heart of our defense and in face of terrible punishment was in its way a tactical masterpiece But the truth was, he was prepared for the greatest sacrifices in order to hold the plateau. He had actually brought divisions out of the active battle line in front of the Third Army to the south of us and in front of our neighboring corps on the north to throw in against the Canadian corps. It was a last ditch business. The spirit that animated him is shown by the following corps order, captured by us a few days later Soldiers of the Corps. Up to the present time we have given up to the enemy a certain amount of foreign land of little value for military reasons, while causing him heavy casualties. The British are seeking a decision and we, of this corps have a most important section from the point of view of a decision. Remember that here you are now defending your home, your family, and your dear fatherland. Remember how your homes will look if war is carried there and with it invasion of the enemy's hordes. If you will stand fast, victory will be ours as before, for you are superior to the enemy, who now only shows a desire to attack with tanks, and these tanks we shall destroy. Therefore, carry on, use your rifle cold-bloodedly, and cold steel with courage." I expect that every man will do his duty in the decisive battle coming from the general to the youngest private." It is curious to note how yet once again the German soldier is told that it is only the tanks he has to fear. As has been seen in this great battle of Cambrai, the Canadian infantry depended almost entirely upon their own efforts and their admirable artillery. Nevertheless, It is beyond question that the tank became something of an obsession with the German soldier. His morale in this direction was supported by every kind of mechanical device, of which the anti-tank rifle was perhaps the most efficient. At the crossings of the Canal du Nord south of Marquion, Canadian engineers located 245 anti-tank mines which were destroyed by gun cotton. Various devices were used, a favorite being a loose plank left lying in the road, which required, however, the weight of a tank before setting off the detonator. One of the few tanks at our disposal fell victim to a mine of this character. End of Part 3, Chapter 7 Recording by James O'Connor Randolph, Massachusetts May, 2010